Welcome back to the Rab Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. Here's a snapshot of what's coming up. We're starting to, to realise that the things we've been doing to the planet for the last 50 years or since the Industrial Revolution actually has been causing the earth to get sick. And now young people are growing up in a world where the earth is sick and, and probably unjustly we're asking them to, to be the ones to fix it. They see more of it, uh, this new generation coming up, they see more of it, they're having more of those conversations in a way that we never really did. And I don't think this that they, they're more switched on to it, I think they've just grown up with it and it is a massive part of their lives and will be forever, unfortunately. We can have these conversations, whether it's on a ski lift, whether it's in a mountain hut or anywhere, we are starting to have these conversations more and education and information are some of the, the best things we can use in the fight against climate change. Proud Welshman Hugh James is a committed climate and mountain lover who is genuinely concerned about climate change and plastic pollution. A former science academic, Hugh is a passionate educator on these concerns. When I explain to Hugh, I often feel anxious about big topics. He says calmly, don't panic, it's okay and instead encourages me to focus on small, achievable wins. In this episode, Hugh introduces Rab's material facts, explaining that its purpose is to help outdoor consumers make better choices when making a purchase via clear, concise, honest data on the complexities of product composition. Transparency around where and how a product is made, as well as which materials we used, is just a small part of the sustainability journey. Material facts is an industry first, aiming to strengthen the trust between consumers and the brand and setting an example for other brands to follow. Hugh's message is stay calm and believe that these small, thoughtful steps really do make a difference. Hugh's hunch is that freaking out and panicking about huge problems has a tendency to tip people into feeling overwhelmed and can move them into climate apathy. Great to meet you, Hugh. How are you today? Pleasure's all mine, yeah. It's nice and sunny down here in Wales, so I'm a happy chappy. Excellent. I'm actually coming down this week, and so I hope it's going gonna, it's gonna to last. I've not been down for a while, so I'm very excited about that. Yeah, we'll make sure we book it in for you. Lovely. Where, where are you based exactly? I'm proudly from the, the valleys of, of South Wales, so I often call it like the, the fourth unofficial national park of, um, of Wales, uh, where we've got a Banai, a Riri, um, a Pembrokeshire, and then the valleys are like 27 different valleys uh, in the South Wales coal fields. And we've got some beautiful things here from mountain biking to, I was just out on a, an old quarry rock climbing the other night, and um, yeah, there's plenty of stuff to do. It's interesting because I'm from a mining, a small mining town up in Yorkshire, uh, and um, I guess a lot of the industry, if you like, happened underground, and now a lot of it's been landscaped. So if if you didn't know about mining, you would you would hardly notice that it kind of ever existed. Yeah, my work currently in in climate solutions and communicating climate change really kind of. Um, is visualized in in where i'm from because all the the south hills valleys everyone that was uh, exploited for coal now has coal tips on the summits of um of the mountains so from i currently live on the mountain where my grandfather mined um and in um in south wales and there's a tip right up here that i go running across but from any like high location you can see three four maybe five other coal tips where they've taken the, the coal out and anything that wasn't needed they just left on top of the, the the things so 
if we go climbing, it's normally in a quarry that was quarried for exploiting either coal or other minerals. Uh, and if we go running, it's normally across coal tips that were there because of the, the coal they took out the ground. Wow, amazing. And tell us a bit more about the work you're doing now. Or in fact, if I met you, you know, on a bus, I'm like, oh, what's your job? Oh. How, how do you handle that one? <laughs> Really, I'm a, I'm a science communicator by training. I did astronomy and space science and geology at university. I want to be a planetary geologist, then realize how hard it is to actually be a real scientist. <laughs> and I quickly changed tack towards uh, talking about it and, and then other people do the hard work. And my, my job in, in astronomy for, for a while was like looking at things that were billions of years old and quickly realized over the last maybe decade um, that the the pressing issue for us at the moment is climate change and plastic pollution. So as much as I love talking about the stars, that the sun's going to be there for another 5 billion years, and the pressing issue of, of today is uh, is climate. And, you know, science communicators in general, we've seen how important they are through the COVID crisis, right? Like um, the none of us knew what um, a COVID virus was. We didn't know. I spent a lot of my time talking about how soap works on a, a really microscopic level, um, how virology, immunology works, and really taking that that information from scientists and making it really understandable for, for the general public. And largely that's now what I do for uh, for outdoor uh, brands, including um, I'm an ambassador for Rab, um, taking that that co more complicated data and making it really understandable for everyone. Yeah, brilliant. So climate change, can you give us any sort of picture or illustration, any stats of like how big a problem it is? Obviously, I'm a mountain guide and you know, I've seen changes over years, but how do you get that message across when, you, when you're doing a talk in a succinct way? Yeah, it's a difficult one because we've gone from in the last 20 years of no talk of climate change or global warming on a, a mass scale across the, the media and across people's dinner tables to now it being, you know, depending on who you talk to, people might be talking about it once a, a month, once a week, once a day. I talk about it multiple times a, a day with various people. And it is really, it's a difficult one because it's a really existential crisis. Like the 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 way that we're heading with carbon emissions going the way that they are, it's going to absolutely significantly change everything about our culture and society forever. And that's a that's a big problem to start to tackle. I get around it a lot by um, by reminding myself that I'm an astronomer and that uh, we are but a, a speck of dust in the in the universe. And actually, everything's fine. <laughs> so that's how I, that's how I sleep at night. Um, but we've known about how carbon dioxide creates a warming effect factor on the planet for 40, 50 years or more. Uh, and yet we've chosen, not really chosen, but we've, we've had until now to start to really tackle it and only starting to, to take it seriously. I, I'd argue that we haven't really started taking it really seriously, um, but we've only just started to take it seriously. And my work is communicating to people it used to be communicating to people what is climate change, like what is the science behind climate change and why the climate is changing. And I still do that for um, for lots of people. But now the, the work of scientists is, I'd argue, largely done. We've proved that climate change exists. 
Over 97% of all scientists in the world agree uh, on that. It's tough to get anyone to agree, agree on anything anymore, yet 97% uh, agree on it. Um, and we know how to tackle it. I'd argue that the, the, the now baton shifts to society, culture, politics to start to take that on, even industry and, and manufacture, to start to take that on and push forward with it. Unfortunately, we, we are starting to see change. I've seen so much change in the last 15 years, but it's just not quick enough. We need it to be quicker. Great. So as, as an outdoor lover, user like myself, I'm trying to sort of, you know, trying to sort of wrestle with how I can make better choices, you know, be that, you know, sort of how I travel, where I travel. Uh, I mean, lockdown's been interesting for me. I've sort of done fewer sort of miles driving and less flying around than I've ever done in my life. You know, in the past, there was a time where I might be going to the Himalayas twice a year, uh, sort of flying there. Um, uh, and so I'm just trying to get my head around, yeah, the travel and then sort of products, you know, how can I be more conscious? What sort of things should I be thinking about? Uh, let's start with product. Um, um, and, 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 and where are things at in the outdoor industry? Uh, all the things I use as a climber, both the clothing, the hardware. The, the product side of the outdoor industry is by far, I think, the, the biggest the, um, thing that we need to start to tackle. Because, you know, the outdoor industry, you know, if you're talking about the, the United States, uh, then the outdoor industry as a whole, including recreation, including um, the tourism part of it and everything else, is about $800 billion dollars. Um, in the UK, it's a little bit less at 28 billion. Still significant parts of, of all of our GDPs. Um, but the the manufacture and the clothing, the gear within that is actually relatively small um, compared to the, the larger um, part of it. However, it really does have an outsized impact because when we create um, any clothing, when we create um, gear that we go climbing with, uh, when we create ropes and everything else, Largely, a, a big number of that comes from plastics uh, that is, is used. 4% of all fossil fuels that we take out of the ground every year just goes to, to making plastics. And I'm, as a, a person who studies climate science quite a lot, I'm, I see the different ways that we're trying to get around reducing that number because we, we want to reduce fossil fuels in general for using for heating and, and the likes. But how are we going to reduce that for plastics as well? Um, and then the manufacturing process is very carbon intensive. You need energy to to create things. So the the process that we go through to create jackets and ropes and uh, carabiners, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is exploiting natural resources using uh, fossil fuels to create things that we that we need. And there are ways around that by using the energy that we use to re use uh, renewables instead. Um, I know that uh, RAB have gone a long way. I think over 60% of uh, uh, the um, manufacturing process now, they're trying to use renewables to, to energize that, not fossil fuels. I have to check me on those, uh, on those facts. But um, in general, if we're trying to use more renewables, less fossil fuels, we still need to get around this problem of using plastics. And Arguably, there's there's a lot of plastics already out there. A large proportion of of what rubber have been using 
uh, as their materials of their purchasing for plastics is now recycled, which is great. But there still needs to be a, a certain number of that that's also virgin for the, the more technical uh, side of the gear. So as a consumer, um, it's not really... It's difficult to go out and, and purchase things that I think are lower impact on the environment. Because let's get away from saying that things are sustainable or eco-friendly or any of that kind of nomenclature because they're just not. Um, you can't really have a, a sustainable outdoor jacket or one that's eco-friendly. Um, you can have one that's less impact than the next and those marginal gains, I think, is something we should all be looking out for as consumers uh, in the outdoor world. I mean, that leads us on, I guess, to, to, to talking a little bit about the material facts that, that, that RAB uh, launched last year. Tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that and how that might help me when I'm making a purchase. As a consumer, the, the thing that I always push people to ask brands for, because as consumers, we do have we can we have the uh, money that we can essentially vote with, uh, depending on which brand we want to use, and we do have a, a voice as a community. And I'm always pushing professional athletes and people who use brands to tell their brands what they want from them. And ultimately, I think the thing that we all need from brands is transparency. It's sustainability reports from all our brands. And it's um, more transparency in where they get the materials from, um, what the manufacturing process is like. So if I'm going to put my faith in a brand when I, I purchase it at the store, then I, I at least have some kind of information about what they think about um, the environment. And I'm always looking for, for brands to, to think environment first and profits second. That's a really tough one. Because largely there are shareholders involved, there are you know people who have lots of money invested and, and the likes. That's always a difficult one. But there are a number of brands that I've gone to and talked about, and I get invited along to talk at the athlete summits and the likes, who I just see talking about environment on a day to day basis. Their athletes care, um, their consumers care. Uh, in a new poll from uh, from Rab, they saw that I think seventy. Six percent of the um, of the poll consumers cared uh, about sustainability and the environment, um, which I would argue should probably be be more than that. And I'm sure I'm sure it is if we do a, a wider poll, but people do care. And when we push, when we talk to brands, when we talk to them on social media or talk to them in the shops, we need to be telling them that that we care about this kind of stuff, and they'll start to put it at the forefront of what they do, or at least in the top three things uh, of what they do. So, with material facts, this a new initiative uh, launched by Rab. The idea is to to take that data that we already collect um, and that Rab already has, and then putting it in a way that can be consumed by consumers. You know, uh, consumers are not especially outdoor brand consumers. People who look at um, the the amount of um, waterproofness of a of a jacket, the uh, the lightness of a jacket, the what it's what it's made of, which type of Gore-Tex it is, or or other type of waterproof material, you know, they look at all these different things and they come to a conclusion. And material fact says you can do all that same stuff, 
but with sustainability and look at the impact of your jacket or of this jacket compared to others. And I'd love to see this this taken up by more of the industry so that if I look at a a jacket from Rab and then I look at a competitor, competitor jacket and say, okay, these will both do the, the job that I want them to um, and I really need to, to, to get one of them. Um, which one am I going to get? Let's look at the material facts of both of these and make a decision. Now, that decision might be that I'm going to the Himalaya and I need a really durable jacket that's going to last me the next five, ten years. And it needs to be this, it needs to be really highly technical. So I might want to use virgin plastics in that because I want it to last a long time and be as, as bomber as it can be. And instead of choosing the one that's highly recycled, I'll choose the one that's uh, that's virgin plastics, but highly technical. Um, or I might say that, well, I just, I want something for kind of wandering around London town. Uh, it doesn't need to be really that um, technical. I just need something to keep the, the wind off and the rain off while I'm walking around. And I'll say, okay, the, this one is highly recycled. There's recycling in the uh, the outer shell, uh, in the, the inner, the liner of it. The down is recycled. This will be perfect for me for just wandering around uh, Clamberis, um, popping to Pete's Eats, RIP Pete's Eats, or um, just any kind of city. So it puts the the decisions, not necessarily the onus on consumers, because we, we don't need that. We need brands to um, to do that work for us, but then give us the choice afterwards. There's a great initiative here in Wales that, that we're pushing to make Wales the first deforestation-free nation, where anything that's sold in supermarkets are guaranteed not to have come from a place that's been deforested to create that product. And that's what I want from, I want to walk into a supermarket and go, I can buy this because I know that it's come from a place that's not been deforested. And I want the same from outdoor brands. It shouldn't be consumers that have the, the weight of all that on them, but it should be us that's given the choice. Brilliant. Well said. Uh, going a couple of things there. Obviously, people, there might be people listening who, who, who don't know about Pete's Eats, which was, of course, uh, one of the most if not the most famous climbing, hiking cafes in, in the UK, based in Clamberis, uh, and, and sadly, it's no longer with us, is it, uh, I yeah. believe? Uh, which I think it's just, half... been, just been purchased, but I'm not sure where it's turning into. Yeah, yeah, all those uh, incredible breakfasts and just a place where climbers used to meet and chat about climbing and the universe uh, and the other thing was about Wales being at the forefront of some of these initiatives because if I if I'm if I remember rightly Wales was the first place where they started charging for plastic bags or were really keen to get away from plastic bags in supermarkets and I remember coming across that and thinking you know years and years ago being a little bit annoyed it's like oh I've got to pay and then thinking wow that's really cool uh, and that was quite a long time ago now that they they started that and it was those, sometimes it's those little changes, isn't it? Yeah, I, you know, no one who, who knows me well will will be shocked to realise that I'm a, I'm a proud Welshman. And and that's not just blind faith in, in my country and blind nationalism. I, I, I honestly believe that the things we're doing in Wales are um, progressive. I'm a progressive person. I want, I want to see change for the better. And a lot of that comes from be in a small country that um we have the power and certain devolved powers to say okay we're gonna 
create a future generations commissioner and their their whole the future generations act in wales the the whole idea is that you can invoke it if there's a bill trying to be passed where it has a detriment to future generations so there was a a, a new road trying to get through the um uh, trying to go through the wetlands um Dean or dubbed uh, Wales's Amazon uh, Amazon in terms of biodiversity, but you know you could invoke the the Future Generations Act and say, well, this is of detriment to future generations. We shouldn't build this because future generations won't get to benefit from this thing. And there are other things like that that come from being a smaller nation. And at COP twenty six, we had a a meeting with Scotland's first minister and um and Iceland's and. They got together and said, uh, Mark Drake further than the likes, and said, what can small nations do to start to lay the, the, the trail for larger countries to follow? Because it is difficult for large, large countries, the UK as a, as a whole, the USA, China and the likes, to suddenly change direction and say, okay, we're going to go 100% renewable in 10 years' time. Or we're going to try and create a, a national rainforest, which is or a national forest, which Wales is trying to do. Or we're going to introduce this ban or a bottle, uh, a bottle uh, buyback scheme or something like that. It's difficult for large nations to do it. And it's one of the reasons I think that that RAB, even though it's getting close to saying RAB and not, now not a small business, um, but for smaller businesses in the outdoor industry to, to be doing initiatives and saying, hey, you guys who are like the very top profit earners from uh, the outdoor industry, you need to follow us in what we do because we can do it quicker and better, but ultimately it's the way that everyone needs to go. It's the same way. Thank you. Um, we talked about plastics and that sort of recycling, and I, I'm really pleased that there are kind of athletes out there really very much involved now, and, and some of the top sort of well-respected climbers and runners who, who are you know, showing off uh, climbing pants, for example, that have been repaired rather yeah. than buying new ones and just that for me that's that's wonderful because like it's almost giving everyone permission it's okay you, you, you know that you know you might not be able to um repair everything but um and of course when you're in in the field on an expedition that's kind of what you do i don't know but i always take gaffer tape with me uh you know it's one of my staples when i'm on an expedition uh super glue and gaffer tape um but i was i was I was thinking also about fluorocarbons and where products are manufactured. Presumably, they're, they're also big challenges for uh, any industry, but the outdoor industry. And, and, and Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, the plastic problem, the climate change problem, is, I still think the biggest threat to not the planet, because the planet will survive regardless. It's been your four and a half billion years. It'll, it'll continue to survive after us. But to humans, absolutely, climate change is the big threat. But the one nipping at the heels, the one coming up in the rear is plastics. It's a, I was described to me recently as a ticking time bomb of, uh, of a threat. Um, because all this plastics uh, in the ocean, 400 million metric tons of plastic uh, are produced globally each year, of which uh, 8 million metric tons of that gets put into the, the oceans. A garbage, a garbage truck full of plastics goes into the oceans every minute. So a lot of that is larger stuff, it's plastic bottles and it's things that's large as fishing nets and, and, and the likes. But a lot of that starts to break down uh, and breaks down more and more to microfibers uh, and microplastics. And those microplastics 
don't really ever go away. They they live there in uh, in the environment forever. So the the ticking time bomb is we should be collecting these plastics before they break down and end up as microplastics. So because when they end up so small, it's really difficult to get them back. And that's in microplastics, the the little tiny noodles that are less than five millimeters across. And it's also in microfibers that come from our clothing that end up uh, in the oceans. And um, I, a good friend of mine is, was one of the leading scientists in, in microfibers and looking at how much gas um, washed down from your washing machine into the oceans uh, with each, each load. I take great pride in telling kids that one thing they can do to help with this problem is wash their clothes less um, so that they can they have permission from me to, to, to not wash their clothes quite as much. Um, but the microfibers that, that end up in the, in the environment are going to be there for a long time. And the microfiber consortium uh, is a great part of the or a great initiative for the outdoor industry to be, be a part of because it monitors like which what are we creating as as outdoor brands what clothing are we creating what base layers what jackets and how do they contribute to that problem because one of the things that i that my job is is telling people it's okay like we're all really worried we all can do our bit but very much i don't know about you Andy but i don't run my country um I'm sure that you have outsized influence, but don't currently run yours. So the we are limited in what we can do on a day-to-day basis. We don't have those big responsibilities, but we can put, if we wash our clothes, we can put them into uh, to bags that catch those microfibers. We can, there are now washing machines on in stores. Some is getting better that have little capture devices, like in your tumble dryer where it catches the lint at the front and you take that out and put it in the bin. There are now ones that for washing machines as well that catches the microfibers and then you can put that in the bin. So we are getting there, but that's what you can do. What the microfiber consortium and people like Rab and other outdoor manufacturers can do as well is say that we are going to test all of our products and make sure that uh, year in, year out, the the recycled fabrics that, that we that we use and the virgin plastics that we use, what are they contributing to the microfiber problem? Um, and that's what, what Rab are doing, everyone in the microfiber consortium, and hopefully more and more people in the outdoor industry are going to be buying into that because, yeah, plastics is the is the next big thing nipping at the heels on climate change. Brilliant. I really like that. Sort of, it's like a, a dual track thing. It's sort of what what I can do, and what the sort of the bigger players can do. Yeah. Yeah, it is because you know you mentioned um, PFCs and going fluorocarbon free. The PFCs we're starting to to understand more and more about them. They're basically long chain molecules that that exist kind of forever. They're forever chemicals. We we kind of call them. So. The idea behind these forever chemicals is that they would just be really hardy and long-lasting. That was the whole deal. Plastics is the same. Like plastics are really, really great because they they just last ages. So they're really good materials. It's just we're using them in completely the wrong way. We started using plastics for for disposable things, even though they are supposed to last forever. So it's just the wrong use of them, but they've revolutionized our entire world. And PFCs as well, this this idea of, um, you'd have seen them in like non-stick um, 
frying pans or we use them to to make things waterproof which that's how we normally use them in the outdoor industry um but we're slowly starting to take them out because we've realized that they hang around in the environment pretty much forever they can get into your bloodstream they can get into our food systems and it's just really bad and you could argue we didn't know about this manufacturers have known about it for a long time but we didn't know about it and the politicians didn't know that we knew about it and wanted something done about it but rabbit jumping the gun as, as as a lot of other people are by saying we want to go pfc free and online i think rab um by autumn winter this year is 70 percent uh, of the line of fluorocarbon free and the idea is to to make them or to eradicate pfcs completely from the lineup uh, i think by next year or, or or beyond so that's difficult because when you're buying in plastics from different places and buying in materials from different places you need to be able to to know where everything comes from and i don't know if anyone's visited i'm sure you visited the the um, factory where these kind of things are made there's so much stuff coming in from so many different directions it's really difficult so the manufacture process is a big part of how we go about um monitoring and keeping the transparency there so visiting factories knowing where your product comes from again is easier for some of the smaller brands and like if you've got a very small brand and you're making leggings and a, a and a running top and maybe a, a jacket you can probably keep on top of where those are coming from but the really large manufacturers who are like the biggest in the outdoor world it's not impossible to know where every single zip comes from where every single seam comes from you know pfcs are largely using the the tape that goes on the inside of waterproof uh jackets and the likes how do we know where all those things come from and it's just legwork and again not legwork that we should be doing as consumers but legwork the brand should be doing for sure so that's a big a big challenge for the i would imagine for uh well the materials teams uh, companies that like where they're sourcing things from and then also the designers presumably trying to reduce some of those, for example, the tapes, the zips, um, you know, so that's that's almost a, de- a design challenge for them, isn't it? Yeah, and it's something that, that does pop up on, on material facts. They're, they don't, they rather not trying to say that, you know, it used to be, this is uh, a PFC-free garment and there'd be an asterisk saying, uh, except for these parts of it. And that was generally accepted. And what Rabba saying are, actually, that's not acceptable. We need to we need to list it on there if it's if it's not PFC free we need to say it's not PFC free, but also we need to say where it's not PFC free, and stop and again just that transparency, just always saying we're not and not saying that we don't have an impact, because you can't you can't really create something in this world without having an impact, you can't really live without having an impact, but saying I'm tr- we're trying to do better those marginal gains are what we're going for. And it might not be this year, but it might be the year after. And we'll, we'll get there. Um, just need to trust us and run with it. Thanks, Hugh. One of the things I uh, struggle with uh, personally is, is when I do my sort of weekly shop, you know, sort of like try and shop locally. Very lucky where I live. There's a, you know, um, good sort of fruit, veg, butchers, whatever you want. But like most people, I do go to the supermarket as well. And just the amount of plastic on things there, you know, sort of like, you know, obviously you can buy bread that's in a uh, 
in a paper bag or like no bag at all. I mean, often when I buy, I, I'm one of those very annoying people for years. When I go to a supermarket, I just put the veg loose onto the conveyor belt and <laughs> and I, I get like, you know, the death stare. People are like, oh, and there's onions rolling about and I'm just like, I just don't need bags. <laughs> but then I do buy other things that are in plastic bags. And then I was just looking in my uh, bread bin this morning, having breakfast, I'm like, Look at all those plastic bags from different, you know, like bagels. Are. And um, I sort of, you know, how much, you know, it's, again, it's down to what can I do? But also, you know, can I have better choices in the supermarket? You know, um, you know, everything. There's just so much. It's just, it's just plastic hell in there, isn't it? So the supermarkets are a really interesting microcosm of the problem on a on a large scale and a really good analogy for the outdoor industry and, and, and everything beyond because it's really nuanced and it's really it's really complicated. So uh, I agree supermarkets uh, as as fact number one, I agree supermarkets well I, I actually think governments should be the ones dictating the supermarkets what you can and can't uh, sell and how you can sell them. I don't think we should be relying on private organizations to dictate that. Um, like I said, in Wales, we're going for a deforestation, pushing towards a deforestation-free nation. So governments can dictate the supermarkets. You can only have things in your supermarket that are deforestation-free. That would be great. That would be my ideal. Next, I'd love to take supermarkets uh, and have them own it more they know that that's what people want um and i'd love to see them step up their game however um things like foods we we waste as a global society that's now tipping over eight billion and more we've we've passed that threshold um we throw away about a third of our um produce that we create each year so of people say that we can't feed the people on the planet we already create enough and but we throw away a third which is kind of incredible so food waste is a big problem um and plastics are a really good way to get around that problem because on something like a cucumber for example you have to excuse the the, the actual numbers but i think it's around the the longevity of a cucumber is increased from seven days to around 21 days if it's wrapped in plastic so is it better to have cucumbers that only last seven days with no plastic and have more food waste potentially or is it better to have a 20 a 21 day lasting cucumber that's wrapped in plastic and then deal with that plastic later on it's just really complicated and there's always these trade-offs uh, i was speaking to someone from a, an outdoor brand that creates camping chairs and we were talking about they were saying that they tested recycled materials compared to um, virgin materials on their chairs and said, you know, these ones were made from recycled materials last two years, but these ones made from virgin materials last 10 years. So is it better to make the, the virgin product that has new plastics in it, not recycled, that lasts 10? Or is it to make the recycled one that lasts two? And we're in supermarkets, we're always you know jetting up against that do we do we buy uh do you buy local beef because it's supposedly more sustainable for for the environment or do you buy meat from a, another side of the planet um transport in any food source 
comes out to around about 13% of the total carbon emissions of that thing. Whereas the most emissions for red meat is from uh, the soy that's used to, to feed them. It's from the actual methane that comes out of those, uh, those cattle. Um, or do you then move on to something that's a, a red meat replacement? Uh, and there are problems that come with that too, but arguably um, much better. So it is super complicated. So again, I'm always trying to tell people um, it's it's okay. You don't need to be <laughs> don't need to be on top of it all the time. I bought a um, some uh, some mulch, some compost from the local store recently, um, from the hardware store. I assumed, and I need to look this up properly, that Wales was a, a, a peat-free nation. I thought we'd, and the UK, I thought the UK was a peat-free nation. I thought we'd go rid of peat in our compost. But I think on this bag, it said that there was peat in it. And we shouldn't be burning peat because it, or digging up peat because it takes in so much carbon. Um, but I just made a mistake. Um, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to think about that for the rest of my life. Because if I thought about all the mistakes that we make, then... I would huddle in the corner over there and never come out again. Well said. And, and um, I, I really like that phrase, it's, it's okay, don't stress, because there is that bit of panic, isn't there, you know, for people to sort of, yeah. I know there's a problem, a bit stressed, they want to make a difference, but it's the work that brands are doing or maybe supermarkets or, like you say, governments at the higher level, almost a duty to sort of help us make better decisions and, and sort of say, okay, I've got this, I've got this choice, it's the virgin jacket, but it's going to last 10 years versus the, the, the recycled, et cetera. And, and similarly with the, uh, the cucumbers, a great, a great analogy. I was thinking about my experience. It's like there's a lot of care and there has been for quite a while along amongst young people. And it's almost like they're sort of driving this. A friend's uh, son, I remember, I mean, he's 25 now, but, you know, so 10, 15 years ago, he was, these are the things that were, keeping him awake at night if you like as a as a, uh, a young a young guy and now they're much more out in the public do you find that when you're engaging and doing your talks and sharing um is is there just more passion from younger people and, and in a sense they're the future and they're the ones driving this yeah I've, I've been doing climate change communications for about 15 years now and I've seen a big change in the last 15 years, as I'm sure you have, Andy, as well. Like, you know, we'd come home when I was a kid and not only did we use plastic bags, but I don't know if you ever had in your, in like the outdoor part of your house, you'd have a, a big tub where you'd put the plastic bags in the top and then you can take them at the bottom and use them for, for whatever. You'd use them for bin bags, you'd use them for, for everything, wrap your football boots in and, and everything else. And plastic bags were just part of life. And then you grow up a little bit and you they pass um, a five pence charge on plastic bags and I can't even see them in the supermarkets anymore. They're bags for life, if, if, if anything. And you notice that change starts to, to happen. And largely, the, the older that you get, that change becomes a little bit scary and you want things that the way that they were. Nostalgia kicks in and, and we feel like things were better back in the day. And things might have been back, better back in the day for, for us who didn't have to worry about recycling. I'd argue that, you know, our parents and our grandparents' generation just didn't have to worry about any of this. Like, it was a, maybe big tobacco, but, you know, largely it was a, a carefree, carefree world. Um, of course, that's not true. They had many, many other uh, issues to deal with. But 
we're starting to, to realize that the things we've been doing to the planet for the last 50 years or since the industrial revolution actually has been causing the earth to get sick. And now young people are growing up in a world where the earth is sick and, and probably unjustly we're asking them to, to be the ones to fix it. That does breed a lot of opportunities. I think moving to renewable energies and to electric cars and, uh, and the likes is a great opportunity and we should be pushing for that more. But they have grown up with all the, you know, we're talking about climate change on a podcast that's about for an outdoor brand. Like I was speaking, I spoke at the, uh, the AMI, the Association of Mountaineer Instructors, AGM, on climate change just like a couple of weeks ago. When, when, when did that happen? Like when did this become a conversation we were having on a daily or weekly or monthly monthly basis? And they are they see more of it, uh, this new generation coming up, they see more of it, they're having more of those conversations in a way that we never really did. And I don't think it's that they they more switched on to it. I think they've just grown up with it and it is a massive part of their lives and will be forever, unfortunately. Yeah, well said. And I, I, I was thinking there also, as well as the age thing, more like, you know, the geographical location of where you where you live. So obviously you, your mining heritage, you, you describe where you live and, and that sort of mixture of natural beauty and mining uh, landscapes. Um, people in India, I mean, it's people in China. Do, do you ever communicate with people there and have conversations with them who are, who are using, you know, like say coal to fuel their, um, their own industrial revolution. Um, how, how, how can we square such a big thing there? Or if we meet someone from those countries, you know, so if, if you like, I kind of, I buy my recycled, uh, jacket and then I go on a trip to India or China where it's so, so huge the the industry that's going on there yeah it's a, it's a it's a difficult one we should be doing as much as much as we can we come from a nation that's that led the industrial revolution and we've benefited from the industrial revolution and burning fossil fuels for for centuries so you know, I, I do a lot of talks in, in America and I often get, well, why should we reduce our fossil fuels? Look at China. Um, and yeah, China are, uh, I think at the moment, the, the largest emitter of fossil fuels. But you look back through time and, and how much the UK and the US have emitted since the industrial revolutions. And it's really, really high. Um, I think China are now slightly getting overall emissions over time are slightly higher. Um but they've only had an industrial revolution for the last 20, 30 years. So much like, you know, in, in the UK, we look at the Amazon jungle and we're losing the Amazon at a, an extreme rate, though that rate did go down last year, which is a bit of positive news. Um, but we look over there and we say, um, you shouldn't deforest your country for, for um, economic gains uh, and the likes not realizing that 65% or more of the UK used to be covered in forest and now we're down to between 10 and 15%. So we've already cut down like that 50% from 65 to 15. We've hunted all of our, like all of our large mammals to extinction. Um, and then we start to look around the world and say, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. 
I think we still have a, a role to play in in how we we help people around the world, whether that's through uh, climate reparations or um, uh, the the loss and damage that that we started to say we should be giving forward at COP twenty seven and the likes. We should we should be giving money to, to nations that are now more underwater or that we send our recycling to or that are being damaged by air pollution because of the um, carbon dioxide we put into the air. Um, but coming from a country where largely at the moment, although I'm sure you'll agree that we are seeing weird weather patterns in the UK and weird things happening, we're not seeing the big hurricanes, the the big tornadoes, the, um, the melting ice caps, and everything else, the flooding uh, or the droughts that come with the climate change. Um, it's one of those things where we see it because it's on the news, but in the same way that you've never really, you can't experience a glacier until you're on it or a big mountain peak or something, you have to to experience it to, to truly love it or uh, to have any connection to it. Seeing these things happening on the other side of the world um doesn't really do it justice and having people i do work with people in different places around the world um and it's very much at the forefront of their minds and they just want the the larger countries the g7 really to be doing better and um giving more help whether that's economically or or otherwise to those countries yeah it's really it's really important and that's a thing that i think we can push our politicians to do but as a as a couple of people who like to spend time climbing mountains, we're very limited as to what we can do there. But I think that the biggest thing, I like to split our actions into hard actions and soft actions. That the hard actions are, hey, maybe we want to cut out red meat from our diet, or maybe we're going to uh, take uh, one fewer flight per year, or maybe we're going to do this, or maybe we're going to do that. There are hard actions that have tangible differences, but then there are also soft actions. There are actions where we can talk to other people about what's happening. Maybe talk to them about how they live their lives and maybe talk to them about what brands that they use. Or have you noticed that this brand has now started doing this thing, this material facts thing? So we can have these conversations, whether it's on a ski lift, whether it's in a mountain hut or anywhere. We are starting to have these conversations more and education and information are some of the the best things we can use in the fight against climate change. Fantastic, Hugh. It's it's been uh, it's been really great to chat, and I, I just wanted to leave people maybe with you know if they if they listen and they want to know more, where's a good place to start to sort of read up on some of the things we're talking about in terms of tips in how to make those sort of hard or soft actions, if you like. Any resources you would recommend, as well as, of course, your own great channels. Yeah, I, I think that um, Protect Our Winters, started by Jeremy Jones out in um, in the States, but now has factions all around the world. Protect Our Winters was primarily a snow sports campaign to begin with, but now it's spread to all sports. And they're really about those, I suppose, more the hard actions, like how do we vote in the right way? How do we um, lobby our politicians to do things in the, in the right way? And then a couple of years ago, to to support that, really, uh, myself and a, a chap called Killian Jone, we started a, a something called the Athlete Climate Academy. And the Athlete Climate Academy has uh, podcasts, um, videos, workshops, and we run live 
uh, in-person workshops with um, with outdoor brands, looking at uh, trying to teach their athletes how to think about climate change better um, and what is actually climate change and what what they can do and what more importantly what they can't do uh, as well. Like I said, we never. I think climate apathy is the new climate denialism that we get so it feels like such a big problem we feel like there's there's no point doing anything whereas those marginal gains we talked about are the things that that we can be doing some people can do a lot if it's within their means but we can also have those marginal gains so protect our winters athlete climate climate academy but also whatever brand you are loyal to um for for us i think it is rab go onto the website look for the sustainability report from that there are other brands that have them and if they don't have them ask them why they don't have them um go on social media say you know i'm looking for your sustainability report where is it because the more of us that ha- make, make these soft actions and just like start chatting um the more things will start to change but like i said education is key protect our winters athlete climate academy hugh it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you and and thanks for uh sharing so many uh, insights and um thanks i could talk to you for hours andy i know great 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 work and i know that you're a i saw on one of your posts you you, you do like a dram of whiskey uh, any favorite oh. uh any because i don't know much about welsh whiskey what's where should i start um it depends on what kind of uh whiskey that that you like um but i am we have two now really good uh distilleries in in wales that do do whiskies penderin uh, up in Abanai, and then uh, up near uh, Ariri, uh, Abba Falls. I've started doing a, quite a nice soft uh, whiskey as well. Uh, obviously, the associated gins that go with those uh, those two. But yeah, Penderin and um, and Abba Falls. You can't go. Maybe wrong. I'll check. I'll check out one of those. Brilliant, and and that will sort of lessen my anxiety a little bit about <laughs> the climate as well. Yeah, of course. Thanks, you. Take care. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Andy Cave, and you've been listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast. To keep up to date and to hear more interviews like this, don't forget to subscribe. I look forward to bringing you more stories and interviews very soon. Stay tuned.